I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is an abridged version of my discussion with Alison Bashford. You can listen to an extended version on the LRB website. Just follow the link in the description. You're listening to the LRB podcast. I'm Mian Christ, and welcome to the third episode in a special four-part series exploring the intersection of climate chaos and reproductive justice. In our last episode, I spoke with evolutionary biologist and feminist scholar Banu Subramaniam about the intersections of science, culture, and feminist thought, as well as the dangers of biological determinism. Today, I'm joined by writer and historian Alison Bashford, laureate professor of history at the University of New South Wales, Sydney. She is director of the Laureate Center for History and Population, as well as founding co-director of the New Earth Histories Research Program. Throughout her career, most notably in her book, Global Population, History, Geopolitics, and Life on Earth, she has traced the ways thinking about population has transformed from the 18th to the 20th centuries. Most relevant to today's conversation, she has written about the rise of international efforts to control global population, from the work of 18th century political economist Thomas Malthus, who argued that the relationship between food production and population makes poverty inevitable, through the panic associated with the best-selling 1968 book, The Population Bomb, written by Stanford professor Paul Ehrlich and his uncredited wife Anne, which predicted mass famines in the 1970s because of overpopulation. She is currently interested in the question, how do we think about population in the Anthropocene? For some, this is not a question we should be asking at all, and is one that is loaded with historical trauma. For others, questions about population are still relevant and bear rigorous investigation. Allison has been awarded the Royal Society of New South Wales History and Philosophy of Science Medal for Transformative Historical Studies of the Biomedical and Environmental Sciences, as well as the Dan David Prize for her scholarship in the history of medicine. Her books include The New Worlds of Thomas Robert Malthus and, most recently, An Intimate History of Evolution, The Story of the Huxley Family. It's a pleasure and an honor to have her as our guest today. Allison, welcome to the LRB podcast. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be talking with you. So you were one of the first people I thought of for this series because I've been tracking this resurgence of population discourse in science and the media, and your work has been central to how I think about the history of not just efforts to control population, but also the intellectual history of how and why people have thought about population as they do. So I thought we'd start with your work on ideas about population as they emerged in the 20th century. And as your work has shown, historically population, you know, thinking about population was about women's reproduction and sexuality. But in the early 20th century, population was also perceived as a problem of density, right, of crowding and land use. So it was also about things like food and soil and nitrogen cycles. Could you talk a bit about the earth systems politics, if we can call it that, that was standard for earlier generations of demographers and economists and the population establishment more generally? So our generation's plural concept of population 
I think is first and foremost one about reproduction, as you say, and bodies and birth control. And and so it should be. Population can never not be about any of those questions. But um, when I first started uh, thinking about writing a large book on population, what took me a bit by surprise was the extent to which that formulation of population, let's call it the reproductive or you know, what historians and sociologists would call the biopolitics of population, all the questions about human bodies and the life science understandings of human bodies and how we can affect that, that that was one strand of what earlier population uh, lobbyists and interest groups and scientists understood to make up the question. Behind and around that, and probably more than understanding population as a biopolitical question, was this sense in which population was spatial, it was about density, and most importantly, it was automatically, for earlier generations, about food. And once you have something to be a question of food, then it's always a question of land, yield, fertility of soil as much as fertility of women. And there's another element that I learned very early on when I did my research for the book, which I called Global Population. And that is to say that population for earlier generations in the 19th and 20th centuries was an economic question about standards of living, about how big or small a population should be to achieve, for example, maximum employment rates. So population was probably first and foremost a question that economists raised. And that is why so many political economists in the early 19th century took up the population question. So there's a kind of a way in which by the time you get to, let's say, 1927, between the two world wars, which is when the very first world population conference was um, undertaken in Geneva, most of the people who came to speak at that conference were not doctors of reproductive medicine or of the new endocrinology or certainly not the very active birth control lobbyists of that era. They were more likely to be agricultural scientists, geographers interested in density, international lawyers dealing with how do we move people across the globe to kind of even up the different densities of populations, and mainly economists. One of the things that makes me kind of stick with this question of population is not only its um, primary significance, I think, now in the 21st century, and therefore the need to understand the history, but the fact that the history itself is often far more surprising and involves far greater a range of expertise than I think is commonly realized. One of the things I find most fascinating about this 20th century history of efforts to control global population is the involvement of people who were deeply committed to anti-colonialist or other leftist projects, right? So the movement's leader in the U.S. Senate, for example, was Ernest Gruning. He was a Democrat from Alaska who was an expert on Latin American affairs and a member of the NAACP, as well as a former writer for The Nation who was known as an anti-imperialist activist and leader in the struggle eventually against the Vietnam War. How does the involvement of people like Gruning complicate your understanding of population or the history of the population movement? I think that 
our generations received the population question quite rightly as a highly problematic question that we receive a history, which is true. This is fact, not interpretation. We receive a history of attempts to manage fertility, increasing or decreasing, that is attached to, we know this, coercive measures, highly problematic measures to say the least. It's a history of unwilling intervention into individual people's lives. And that what we receive also in our generations is a very fine and very strong critique of that, as we should, and a very successful one, and actually a very familiar one. In the success of that critique, if I can put it that way, and we might want to undo this a little bit more, inside and behind and before that is strangely a less recognised history of the connection of progressives, the left, and probably the most difficult to understand is, as you say, a string of very important anti-colonial figures who are also deeply invested in and put a lot of their life effort into managing fertility. And that's the hard one to understand. But there's a whole string of people who do this. And we might take, for example, or your instance is a very good one. Another instance is a British doctor, John Boyd Orr, Lord Boyd Orr, he came to be known. And he was very involved in the earliest, immediate post-war, late World War II UN movements in population, but also in agriculture. And he was, for example, a medical doctor who became very involved in policy around nutrition in the interwar period in Britain. And his entire politics in Britain in that interwar period was concerned with how often very poor people in urban and also remote parts of Britain were, uh, uh, children were undernourished and living lives that were too short. And we need to remember that even in Britain, there really was great poverty over the 19th and early 20th century. And in his own backyard, as it were, John Boyd Orr was trying to close that gap, as we would say, close that health gap. And after the war, he implemented that actually across the global stage with the new UN agricultural organisation and the WHO were able to give him a platform to really put on the political agenda again, you know, people already knew this, of course, but he was able to operate in that new international sphere to think about how food and population were linked, to put on the political agenda, as he put it, the question of population and population growth always meant, in his view, that uh, there were people who lived with an improper standard of living, who didn't get enough nutrition. And in his view, population growth, if that could be managed, people's health via better nutrition would be improved. Now, we may disagree with that. And we may also disagree with the measures through which that was implemented. Although, brackets, himself, he was deeply opposed to anything coercive. Nonetheless, I think that in that instance and in many others, there's this long history of connecting what came to be called population control or fertility control that was implemented by people whose politics can be a little surprising. So it's not, well, it is a history of fascism in the 20th century, But what also needs to be recognised is that it's also part of the history of anti-colonialism. 
And the critique of the former, the critique of the history and fascism is so strong and right that this history of one might even, I realise this will be a very unpopular thing to say, the history of the connection between anti-colonialism and population control has slid to one side. And it's not the only strand, but it's certainly a strand of the history of population that I'm quite interested in. It's interesting to me, you repeatedly have heard you speak and, and talk about things that you feel might not be received well. And you say that you you come from a training in medical history and the history of women's health in the context of a 1990s feminist post-colonialism. So that's sort of your, your base, I guess. But you've also described your approach to doing history as agnostic. I'm thinking here in particular of your approach to writing about Paul Ehrlich, who is today widely reviled on the left and particularly on the feminist left. Could you describe this agnostic approach, perhaps using your work on Ehrlich as an example? What were you able to see or understand about him that you think you might have missed if you had approached his life or his work with a leftist or feminist critique? Thank you. And thank you for such close reading. That's how I perceive that question of my, my statement of agnosticism, which I made when I wrote the, the Global Population book, which I think was 2014. And here we are nearly 10 years on. So it is absolutely the case, and I think it's really important, this is what uh, enables my agnosticism, so to say, that I was trained as a historian in the 1990s, which was a really remarkable, fabulous moment in which to be asked to absorb as a training historian a really high moment of feminist critique, a really high moment of post-colonial scholarship, and in the place where I was trained, those two things, which is within Australian conversation in the 1990s, those two things came together incredibly strongly. So I'm always grateful for the happenstance of my intellectual training, which made my foundation not just history, but a very important moment of a combination of feminism and post-colonialism. And so really I was trained into a generation of historians for whom critique was the point and for whom critical history was the point. And I did that, you know, for better or worse, for many decades and through many books. And for whatever reason, for me, it became... I don't want to say too easy, critique is never easy, but for me personally, it became something near predictable. So in other words, I would see a highly problematic, you know, historical problem and the capacity or the, the argument about that to be understood through some combination of feminism and post-colonialism became not personally predictable, but for the whole field, something that we all did all the time. And so in a way that one's argument could become quite straightforward, I suppose. So when I sat down to write the Global Population book, I thought, well, I could write, you know, 150,000 words, which again told us the problems of population. But I thought we already know that. I already know that, partly because the work had been done so well by so many colleagues and to some extent my own small part in it. And then came my, <laughs> the word I used then was um, being agnostic. I didn't want to be and actually remain unpositioned about managing fertility in different contexts and over time, except obviously for the, the question of coercion and willingness. I mean, I take that as read. But I remain unpositioned and was then about whether it was a good or bad thing and whether we can 
agree or disagree with the players, it became much more important to me not to just push that line, but to stand back and read my historical players and actors and sources at their own word. That's what I tried. So instead of just presuming that I would be laying over my own predictable critique on top of what they were saying or doing, it became a private method in the first instance, if I can put it that way, of agnosticism. It's like suspend that, just read their work for what they're saying and see what else can arise. And for myself, I learned much more that way. So I learned with respect to Ehrlich to pay attention to his, less his population politics or what he was insisting be done about it and more the ecological training, for example. So it made me think, okay, what's his, what's his early expertise? How does he think about, you know, number of insects? <laughs> in his experiments. What's his training in thinking about ecology of insects in his experiments, fertility and mortality and the food that they don't or do get? What was he reading as a young person? How does he get to the question of population? And reading Ehrlich and to be honest, many others, including uh, one of my personal favourites, the extraordinary Indian economist, then ecologist, Radhakamal Mukherjee, who also takes on 1920s and 30s ecological training. And so, in a way, suspending my critique of Paul Ehrlich let me become much more interested in his work as a scientist, his ecological training. That led to, for me, the revelatory question then, now standard understanding, that insect ecology, plant ecology, biological ecology, and I mean that in the technical sense, not ecology as it stands for environmentalism, ecology as in the kind of new 1890s to 1920s discipline, of how do we think about number of organisms in space and what affects that. And the space can be anything from a glass jar in the laboratory to the planet. How do we think about density, number of humans, what affects fertility or mortality? It's that whole discipline, in my view, of ecology that became the common factor in the 1930s, let's say, that produced the catastrophic population experts like Ehrlich in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. So that's an instance for me of how, let's call it agnosticism, but not coming to Ehrlich's work or especially Mukherjee's work through the critique, but instead just reading the words on the page, seeing what else was raised and learning in the global population book that economy and ecology were deeply, deeply linked. And for me, that gave me another strand of intellectual history through which I could understand what happened in the kind of early 1968 onwards population bomb moment. So you then have in the late 60s and 70s in that population bomb moment. You have people like biologist and social ecologist Barry Commoner or the anarchist scholar Murray Bookchin really pushing back against Ehrlich and the population establishment, questioning what they saw as the Malthusian underpinnings of the population bomb logics. They argued that it's just too simple to frame population 
as the driver of social problems. When you're talking about humans inside social systems, you know, ecological devastation cannot be reduced to numbers of humans. And they really argued against reaching for population as a solution to complex social problems. I wonder how you see those critiques, those later critiques, bringing in more complexity to the biological, ecological view, calling into question some of those earlier Earth systems politics. Mm. Yes, the first thing I want to say is the the realization of the complexity there is not new either. This is why I, I continue to love as a historian the population problem is that all the way through it through the nineteenth century and even earlier actually this multi variable question is something that is alive in everybody's thoughts, you know. So it's very few people who understand population as a singular solution or a problem that is created by a a single variable. So that complication doesn't just appear in the 1960s generation, although they often thought it did. And we might actually say that for our current discussion as well, you know, that it's imagined that we're the first to see population as having multiple variables. But, you know, it is a really important moment, that 60s and 70s moment when Earth system scientists come on board. And it is a really, really important moment when early environmentalism that you're starting to talk about there picks up the population question and puts it alongside other variables. You know, and therein lies the lesson for us now, in fact. But I think that the crucial thing about us understanding that population bomb moment and then the immediate complicating of the population bomb thesis is that it becomes tied up with a planetary politics. The Earth system scientists are there inside that conversation. Ours is not the first generation to put Earth system science and planetary catastrophe and human action and inaction together. In my view, that has already been rehearsed or given to us as important experience And environmentalists now, and also population critics, don't want to understand that moment as part of our own and their own history. But in my view, that's a matter of fact, not interpretation. So we may not like to link, let's say, a left-oriented environmentalism now to that particular debate in the 60s and 70s. But in my view, it's absolutely a key precursor. And even earlier, right in the 1920s and 30s, there was kind of an earlier moment of population panic that all of the the sort of early establishment was responding to. And then it was more a question, they thought the solution was more a question of migration, right? We'll move bodies around the earth and we'll get the right number of people in the right places so that they can take advantage of food resources. Um, you know, it, over time, of course, it all has this very top-down managerial kind of like we, quote unquote, we are going to control population to everyone's benefit as we can imagine it. We are at another one of these moments. And for myself in looking at the present tense, I am struck mostly by how we just seem to be asking the same questions over and over and over. And the context is different each time, but we do seem to be at a moment of asking these questions again and perhaps failing to make the connections throughout history and look at the ways that we have asked and failed to answer them before. I think this question of how to think about population in the Anthropocene in in particular is one I don't think people have grappled with fully. 
And given the resurgent discourse around population in the context of climate chaos, this grappling seems increasingly urgent. How should we think about population in the Anthropocene? What is it that you don't know? And what would you most like to understand? I am completely fascinated with how we think about population in the Anthropocene. This is a very live question for me, and there's several ways of asking that question. One is, how do we think about population in the Anthropocene? And another one is, how should we? And they're two very different questions. And in a way, how should we think about population in the Anthropocene is not my expertise. You know, for me, that's the expertise of ecological economists who can put the population variable alongside many others. How do we think about population in the Anthropocene is something that, as a social scientist, I can begin to answer. And it really interests me, this question, how do we think about the population in the Anthropocene? In the academic world, in the academic sphere, uh, we know that books and studies on the Anthropocene quite rightly emerge constantly. The idea has caught so many of us in earth sciences as in human and life sciences. You know, it's conceptually the richest zone and the most critical zone, actually, for a lot of academic thought at the moment. But what I can say is that the population question, however we understand it, is often sidelined. And that interests me for a start. So under the question, how do we think about population in the Anthropocene? One thing that I would say is with great tentative, a very tentative approach, if not a sidelining or sidestepping approach. And or people who think about the Anthropocene won't think quite, quite clearly, won't think about population at all or won't enter that into the conversation. So for a start, that interests me. Do you think that this is a result of the power of the critique that emerged in in the 90s around the population establishment, that the feminist critique of the 20th century efforts? I do. I do. And that really interests me. So why isn't population, I'm not saying it agnostic and it should be, or even how it should be, but why it isn't in constant discussion now, certainly in the way it was for the previous moment of planetary catastrophe. And of course, the terms should be in the light of lessons from there. But why it isn't definitely interests me. And I think that is, as you say, because of the great success of the critique of the 1960s and 70s moment. And that's something that happened over the 1980s, over the 1990s, and into the current century. And uh, long may that be so. So everybody listening should understand that I am uh, not agnostic at all about the need for that critique, about the arguments of that critique, or and I'm especially um, celebratory of the power of that critique, I was part of it. Nonetheless, I think that it has been so successful. In a way, it's an example, I think, of one of the most successful social science critiques ever, that it has kind of put population question, even the, um, the desire or the need or the capacity or the will to think about um, fertility changes or mortality changes, or longevity, 
or even the question of ultra low fertility, which we're moving into now, that in a way, all of that has gone off the agenda. And I don't think it should be. I think it should be on the agenda. Why do I think that? Not because I've got a position on whether, you know, fertility in a net way across the world should be higher or lower. I don't. I don't even have the expertise to say why that would be the case. But I think fertility, mortality, longevity and migration, which was always the third element, that all of that goes up to make what I'm very happy to call still the population question and that that should be somehow feeding into our Anthropocene discussion. What I do want to add there, the reason why I feel that so strongly is that there's this blind spot? No, there's a gap, I think is better put as a gap, between earth system scientists and historians and, and the social scientists who gave us the thesis of the Great Acceleration, and that is scholarship that came out is probably 10 years old now or so, a bit more. And for listeners who might not be familiar with the term, the Great Acceleration refers to this dramatic surge in both human and Earth systems indicators, including things like human population, water use, food production, financialization, direct foreign investment, international tourism. I think shrimp aquaculture is in there. And then things like ocean acidification, tropical forest loss, and greenhouse gases, right? All of these kinds of things that continues to this day. This surge is continuing. So, you know, to peruse the catalogs of graphs spiking skyward is sobering because it's not just how much, but how fast the staggering rates of change across these indicators are almost unprecedented. So in the graphs, which are readily available for anybody to see, just put in great acceleration, in the um, graphic illustrations of the many variables which go up to make the Anthropocene, the first variable, the first graph that is usually depicted is population growth. And it is an interesting question, actually, why it's first. They put it first, I think, because it's the most familiar and most recognisable, not causative. But when that thesis then transfers into Anthropocene discussion of various kinds, that variable disappears. And the reason it disappears is, as you say, the power of the critique, but also the massive difficulty in considering population uh, politically, because arguments about population and fertility can be taken up by the far left, by the far right, by neoliberalism, by individual control, by critique of coercion, by socialist states historically, by fascist states historically, by liberal governments historically. Arguments for fertility control, in fact, have a full range of politics. And mapping that politics is incredibly, incredibly hard. So the capacity for one's statements to be taken up and misunderstood here or taken up and misunderstood there is very, very high. And of course, for all of us in that field, the concern about being misunderstood is also very high. But there's also the case that, you know, there's parts of one's career where concern about being misunderstood has higher stakes than, you know, frankly, later in one's career. Um, the concern about being misunderstood, um, for me anyway, obviously, you know, disappears and is replaced by fascination with actually laying all the things out. So, 
you know, to kind of shorten that answer, um, for me, it is, again, agnostically, empirically, just at the letter of, as a matter of fact, not interpretation, important to take that first variable, which the great acceleration thesis exponents absolutely always put first and put that into the Anthropocene discussion, not sidestep it or ignore it. So I saw a presentation that you gave about a year ago at Columbia, where you talked about your interest in moving past that critique and sort of bringing population back into the conversation. And one of the other guests on this podcast series, Banu Subramaniam, was in attendance and she voiced a pretty strong objection. And she raised her concern very much in the spirit of feminist disagreement without, as she put it, quote, being fractious or being malicious, because these are intellectual ideas we need to really reconcile with given climate change, end her quote there. And I asked both of you if it would be all right for me to raise Banu's objection here, because I think it gets at the heart of something very naughty and unresolved, where the stakes are potentially very high. So Banu said to you, quote, I've been such a fan of your work for so long, and I will say I'm so disappointed by this talk. I see the idea of population as a symptom rather than the focus of a problem. So that for me, population coheres as an issue around which lots of other issues cohere, questions of demography, questions of poverty, questions of inequality. And part of the issue of our response to population has been to take it as the central problem, which becomes a problem of women's sexuality and therefore curtailing women's sexuality with all the horrendous eugenic consequences that has taken on. And so she says, I'm just a little surprised that you've gone to a different place, and I'm interested in why you've gone to a different place than I feel your writings have taken us. That was a year ago, so I'm guessing your thinking has evolved since then. So I'd like to offer you an opportunity to respond to this objection, which I think might be coming up in listeners' minds. And it's one that I know you do indeed expect to arise. Uh, yes, I certainly expect it to arise. But I think that there's a misunderstanding that I've gone to a different place, actually, mm -hmm. <laughs> because a close reading of my global population book and the introduction to that will actually reveal what I then called agnosticism, as you picked up. You know, that was not a positioned book. That was not a book. That was not a study, as I said earlier, which repeated the valid feminist critique of the population question. It was a book which took that as part of what was going on and historicized that. And so in a way, it's not a different place. It's a continuation of the same complex history that I tried to write. So I actually disagree that I've changed. I think I might have strengthened that interest. I might now have attached to what I used to call agnosticism, the literature on post-critique which has arisen since then, I'd say that's the case. But it's not uh, to understand that as a, a shift from my, well, certainly it's no shift from my feminist or post-colonial personal politics, that's for sure. But actually as a, as a scholar and as a historian and a historian of the development of particular ideas, it's not a different place to what I presented then at all. I completely understand where the critique comes from. I am quite interested in continuing to show I understand unpopular and uneasy and difficult anti-colonial politics that 
the population question and population actors in the past of all kinds of national and regional origins. I continue to be interested in the connection between anti-colonialism and the population question. I was in the global population book. In fact, that it was one of my main arguments. So in a way, I think it's a little bit of a misreading of that original statement. And it might have been a critique, and actually was a critique made then. But I don't back away from that. And I think that a few people have asked, how can we even use the term population without it connecting to eugenics or colonialism or coercion and so forth. And I understand the connection to all of those things because I've been, if I may say so, one of the main historians of the connections to all of those things. But I've also, for many, many years, including that 2014 book, been a historian of the connection between being historically some kind of population lobbyist or activist, including for birth control, and being one of the 20th century's more important anti-racists, for example. And that's why I continue to be interested in the instance of Julian Huxley, because someone like Julian Huxley, this is my interest, you know, it's a matter of fact that Julian Huxley was quite an important lobbyist for birth control. He was quite an important anti-racist, no question about it. He was also president of the British Eugenic Society. So for me, as a historian and a thinker, how you explain those three things together is actually quite important. And it doesn't undo the feminist critique of, I mean, obviously the feminist critique of the connection between population eugenics, but it does start to explain it. And in a way, I think that that's been continuous for me, not a right hand or a left hand turn away. If anything, increasingly, I see myself as a historian, as an explainer of those very knotty problems, how someone is a birth control lobbyist, a eugenicist and an anti-racist at the same time in the 1950s is something that takes quite a lot of experience to understand. And I'm not going to, I'm much more interested in just facing that than in setting it aside and say, putting him in the eugenics category. The same goes for someone like Margaret Sanger. How you explain her interest is something that um, I feel my expertise. I know the 1920s and 30s very well. I know her. Am I saying in any sense that there is something to be, that we should not bring a critique of her eugenics? Absolutely not. I'm one of the historians who has put the critique on the table. But for me, that's not the end of the historical story. For me, a much more interesting, possibly more important thing is to understand how in past times, those seemingly competing politics, in fact, um, sit together. And if for no other reason than to show how that may also be happening in our own generation, we're hardly a generation of pure thinkers or pure lobbyists or pure politicians, if I can put it that way, there's always something that, you know, there's always something that complicates or undoes our positions. And, you know, at the very, at the most surface level, having some understanding of how people in the past imagined themselves as progressive, and in fact were progressive, 
also enacted a kind of an anti-colonialism that was flawed, you know, is something that I think is in the domain of a historian to do. And for me, that's, you know, modestly important, but also sits in a domain as far more interesting, to be frank, now, than simply laying over a critique that we already know. So as a historian, your work is focused on the past and how we understand the past inevitably shapes our understanding of the present and what we see as possible in the future. So I'm curious what you see history's lessons for us in terms of acting on population. So has history not taught us that population is the wrong lever for those in power to press in an attempt to address what are essentially social problems in the case of the climate crisis and ecological breakdown, fossil fuel driven overconsumption, inequality, and the relentless drive for profit under globalized capitalism. History has taught us that there is a need for thinking through reproductive justice. It is back to the critique, which I still stand by. History has taught us that population can be picked up anywhere on the political spectrum Reproduction, health and population, all three of those domains, can be picked up and used for any kind of politics, actually. And that is because reproduction of humans is deeply sexed and gendered in all kinds of obvious ways, that the reproduction of humans is, you know, inescapable core human business that can be attached to all kinds of politics. So that's a lesson that we need to take forward. But that is also to say that it's not picked up by one kind of politics. It's not, um, you know, I mean, th there is wonderful scholarship at the moment, and I know this is partly comes through your, your series of broadcasts that connects how we think about reproductive control and reproductive justice and neoliberalism. So there is a politics around the idea of choice itself, and this has been explored in incredibly useful ways, both historically and now. But I think that what the study of history can show us is that, in this instance, it's not just a right, a political right, that picks up and uses reproduction, sex, gender, and turns that into population questions. But it's also a kind of a liberalism, the very idea of freedom, it's not just a good thing. In fact, it's got a politics to it as well that sits with reproduction often. And we can look at instances of that. And the idea of progressive and even anti-colonialism and environmentalism itself has a kind of a connection to picking up this question of the reproduction of humans and how that should or shouldn't happen in the future. So we've got complicated lessons right across the political spectrum that history shows us. But there's also a way in which, um, you know, I, I understand and I'm very interested in the critique of the politics of counting humans. And I'm very aware of and I've done, you know, decades of research on what drives that and what effects that has. Nonetheless, as we think about the future and connects the past to the future, it seems to me disingenuous that counting the biomass of us, the anthro in Anthropocene, is somehow set aside. That in fact, our biomass, we know, is one of, not the, but one of the variables moving forward 
in the energy balance that we're all in the middle of thinking through in such important ways. And so actually, I think it's disingenuous to think that, say, the discipline of demography isn't and shouldn't be part of the complicated political economy and ecology of humans on the planet in the past and going forward. And one of the most important things that I think going forward is, if we think about demographic charts, the phenomenon of the decline of fertility. And that that is the great change from the time when I wrote my global population book to now, that there is this fascinating decline of fertility across the world. And we know, not least because of what the information demographers give us in counting humans, we know that that is uneven across the world. But we also know that across the world as a whole, uh, the uh, net fertility has declined. And that is a very, very interesting thing to consider historically, to consider politically, to consider in terms of the Anthropocene. But the politics of fertility decline is also up for grabs. And we know that. We know that the politics of picking up what fertility decline means, whether it should be forced, whether it should be reversed, whether it should be implemented more strongly here or there, that in a way that's also um, in some senses predictable politics. And why do we know that? Because in a way we've been there before in and around reproductive justice. So linking that past and that very strange present that we're in uh, around um, fertility decline and in some places ultra low fertility, I think as always has a deep gender politics to it. And that's something that I'm very alert to and I'm quite interested at the moment in thinking, you know, how do we connect our moment, not just of Anthropocene, but also of fertility decline and in some places of ultra low fertility, how we put that together with the previous moment of planetary catastrophe of the 1960s, 70s, when problematically but influentially reproduction and population was at the forefront. So what happens over that gap between these two moments of planetary crisis is something that I'm very interested in uh, in working through. And that is a matter of putting, you know, history, the present and the Anthropocene future together. That was an abridged version of my discussion with Alison Bashford. To hear more about neoliberal approaches to population control, the sometimes dubious motives of aid organizations, and how Julian Huxley might react to the news that global fertility is declining, find the full podcast at the LRB website. The link is in the description. In the next episode, going out two weeks from now, we'll finish up our special four-part series with feminist scholar Jade Sasser, exploring the relationships among the climate crisis and women's reproductive freedoms, health, and activism, and how these relationships are already evolving as we head into an increasingly uncertain future.